Welcome to this episode of Do Loss. Today we're going to talk about a very controversial topic regarding race, particularly critical race theory. And when talking about these issues, we have to understand that there's a lot of definitions that fly around, there's a lot of straw men that get attacked, and we need to clearly define and get to the sources of where this uh, teaching came from. So uh, Neil Shenvey, who was in a Christian apolog- uh, apologetics uh, guy, uh, he calls himself Christian apologetics from a homeschooling theoretical chemist point of view. So he has an article on his website, shenveyapologetics.com. What is critical race theory? And so I want to go through this because in this article, he all he does is he quotes from the critical race theory literature and the proponents of this theory and, and the authors and the, the progenitors of this theory. And he does he doesn't offer any commentary. He does he does bold some of the quotes. So I guess you could say that's kind of some kind of implicit commentary, but he doesn't add any commentary of his own. So we're just going to go through what he's posted here on his page and, and make comments on it. So I'll start from the beginning. What is critical race theory? With the passage, oh, this these are his words, so he just gives a little preamble here. With the passage of SBC Resolution Number 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality, many Christians began asking questions about the nature of critical race theory. What is it? What are its central beliefs? Below, I provide quotes from the literature describing the central components of critical race theory. I'll offer no interpretation or commentary. From Harper, Patton, and Wooden, quote, Access and Equity for African-American Students in Higher Education, a Critical Race Historical Analysis of Policy Efforts, end quote. The Journal of Higher Education, uh, 80, parentheses, for 2009, page, pages, 38, uh, pages 389 to 414. And this is what, uh, this is a quote from this book that he just talked about. While no single definition exists for CRT, many scholars agree on the centrality of seven tenets. So see, that's where the confusion already comes in. There's no, at least there's no consensus definition for what CRT is and what CRT isn't. But according to these, uh, according to Harper, Patton, and Wooden, the authors of this book are critical race historical analysis of policy efforts, they say many scholars agree on the centrality of seven tenets. Tenet number one, racism is a normal part of American life. Often lacking the ability to be distinctively recognized, a CRT lens unveils the various forms in which racism continually manifests itself, despite espoused institutional values regarding equity and social justice. So you see one of their central tenets of CRT is that racism is a normal part of American life. Now there's a lot of there's a lot lot of different ways you can interpret that. It's normal, meaning that people encounter racism every day, and that may very well be there. I would would assume there's at least one person every day in America that encounters some kind of racism. Now, is that racism on the job? Is that racism within your neighborhood? Is that racism, uh, you know, wherever, at the store? We live in a sinful world, so obviously people are encountering racism every day every day i would i would assume because again we live in a fallen world but what's interesting here is that they say racism is a normal part of american life often lacking the ability to be distinctively recognized 
And to me, when I read that, I was thinking, well, how do you know it's a normal part of American life if you can't even distinctively recognize it? And that's that's another problem where we attribute motives to people and we deem it to be racism when we don't even know when it's not even obvious on the on the surface if it is racism or not. So how do you, I mean, how, how can you know somebody's heart? The Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we, because we can't read hearts, it's hard to agree with that statement where they say racism is often lacking the ability to be distinctively recognized. But we'll continue. Tenet number two, ideas like liberalism, neutrality, objectivity, colorblindness and meritocracy camouflage how racial advantage propels the self-interest power and privileges of the dominant group. So these are the central tenets of CRT, liberalism, neutrality, objectivity and colorblindness and meritocracy, camouflage, racial advantage. This is another dangerous tenet because they're especially when you focus on objectivity, neutrality, colorblindness. Those three words center around the very nature of what truth is, objectivity, think things that are true regardless of how you feel, what you think, regardless of uh, experience. Truth is truth. It's unchangeable. And we know that because Jesus is truth. He said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is the embodiment of truth and objectivity. And we know what is right and what is wrong based on his word and his word alone. Colorblindness. And now there's a little semantic game people play when we bring up the word colorblindness. Colorblindness, and I guess you could say in its literal form, is people who can't distinguish between between colors because they have a vision impairment. However, when we talk about colorblindness in the realm of justice, what that means is we're not going to give you special privileges based on your skin color and we're not going to deny you your rights based on your skin color. That's what colorblindness means within the realm of law. So it doesn't mean that we can't see color or the judge can't tell the difference between a lighter melanin person and a darker melanin person. It's that he's going to treat them similarly based on the laws uh, given to us. Uh, well, chiefly, I would say chiefly based on scripture then given to us in within broader American culture. So, this this is another this is another one of the central tenets of critical race theory liberalism neutrality objectivity colorblindness all they do is camouflage racial advantage and propel self-interest power and privileges of the dominant group tenet number three crt gives the gives voice to the unique perspectives and lived experiences of people of color CRT uses counter narratives as a way to highlight discrimination offer racially different interpretations of policy and challenge the universality of assumptions made about people of color. Now, here is where this is actually some something that, that would that would be good and useful. There's nothing wrong with listening to people's experiences. I mean, when you deal with people's experiences, the assumption is what they're telling you is true. So if we care about what's true, then we should care about the experiences of everybody and what they go through. We shouldn't cast them aside just because they have a different skin tone. And again, and and the problem here is people of color. That's another problem, problematic term, because we know what because color is because people of color are generally not white. But isn't white a color? Black is a color. Brown is a color. And that's usually the, the three colors that we use, black, brown, white, black, brown and white. 
but aren't those all colors? So it, it really doesn't make sense. But again, if this is part of the semantic game with colorblindness, then I guess we can give them the benefit of the doubt and say that people of color are just strictly black and brown people. So it says CRT uses counter narratives as a way to highlight discrimination, offer racially different interpretations of policy and challenge the universality of assumptions made about people of color. I don't think we should make assumptions about anybody based on their skin color. Now, there are generalities that we can use about different cultures like in America or versus France versus Nigeria. I think you can make certain assumptions that aren't sinful about a, about certain people within the culture. Does that mean everybody in the culture is like that? Obviously not. But I don't think there's anything wrong with using uh, assumptions about people. Now, I don't think you should attribute negative motives to people based on their skin color either. I think that's that's going too far. But it continues. Tenant number four, CRT recognizes interest convergence, the process whereby the white power structure will tolerate or encourage racial advances for blacks only when they also promote white self-interest. And there again, there's an assumption built into that, that the white power structure, that there is there, that there is a white power structure. And secondly, that they only want to help blacks if it'll only help themselves, which again, if you ask if you talk to whites back in the 60s that were out there protesting and, and trying to help blacks get the rights that they that they deserved based on the constitution and the, the declaration of independence and the bill of rights would they be saying how could they be held guilty of this charge in crt because they were they weren't they weren't wanting to establish a white power structure they're wanting to get rid of it and make it even for all people regardless of the, regardless of their skin color Tenet number five, revisionist history is another tenet of CRT, which, which suggests that American history be closely scrutinized and reinterpreted as opposed to being accepted at face value and truth. Now, this is another good thing that I think we should do, because, when, again, when it comes to history, we should deal with what re, deal with reality, deal with what actually happened. So if we want to focus on certain things in American history that took place regarding slavery, Jim Crow laws abuse, sexual assault of slaves and, and things of, the, of that nature, there should be no problem with anybody to cover those things because those things actually took place within the country. You know, forced subjugation, turning uh, hoses on blacks, intimidating, intimidating them to not vote, terrorizing them in their neighborhoods, making them sign bad contractual deals for houses that they were almost certainly never to get out from, to be, to be able to get out from under. All these things we can cover and be able, and should be able to cover with no problem because they're true. So we shouldn't pretend that uh, going back in history and, and looking at various aspects of it that are true is a bad thing. Because again, truth is good. We want truth, especially as Christians. We should all be in favor of going after what is true. Tenant number six. It says CRT also relies on racial realists or individuals who not only recognize race as a social construct but also realize that racism is a, is a means by which society allocates privilege and status. Here we go again. Now, this one is a two-parter. The first part, I think, is demonstrably true, and a lot more true, and a lot more focus should be put on that, I think, more than, more than there is within the broader conversation about race. Because CRT relies on racial realists, so 
CRT is being relied on by these racial realists who say, which is a true statement, race is a social construct. Race was not race is not a biological, biblical uh, terminology. It's not a it's not a real identity. It was made up by racist. I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even call them racist because they were inventing race at the time. It was made up by partial uh, sinful uh, people who were trying to establish a hierarchy of human beings based on the shape of their skulls. That's where Samuel Morton comes in and others of his ilk who were looking at skulls and trying to determine, well, this person is a, is from here or this person's from there. Therefore this person's brain is not as big as this. So they're, they're subjugated and they're, they're less than this other human being. When the Bible clearly says man was made in the image of God, male and female made he them, we're all made in God's image. So there's no such thing as multiple races or lower races or higher races. That's all that's all hogwash. <laughs> I mean, that's not biblical terminology at all. But then it says that racism is a means by which society allocates privilege and status. Again, if, th- if that's true, we, we, we would like to see evidence and, and proof of that, which is I mean, I don't see anything wrong with if that's actually happening and people are being sorted based on their race. Then we should and we should we should seek to end policies and procedures that do that within the society because that's evil. Ten and seven. CRT critiques claims that a color blindness will eliminate racism. B racism is a matter of individuals, not systems. And C one can fight racism without paying attention to sexism, homophobia, economic exploitation, and other forms of oppression or injustice. So let's start with the first subclaim of this tenant number seven. Colorblindness will eliminate racism. I'm, I'm trying to come up with the words to, I mean, isn't that what we would want? We don't want people to be treated differently based on their skin color. And again, this is this is where the semantic game comes in, because colorblindness here may to them, they may think people mean that we don't see color as in we physically don't see the difference between a lighter melanin person and a darker melanin person. And that's not what is being said by those on the opposite side of CRT. What they're saying is that we are colorblind in the in the in respect of the fact that we're not going to judge people based on how they look. That leads to ending racism because we're not going to we're not going to allow people to judge you differently because you look different than this person. So if you have darker melanin content, you're not going to get favorable treatment versus the person with lighter melanin content and vice versa. That we don't want that. We want people to be treated as individuals. And uh, next one is B. Racism is a matter of individuals, not systems. Well, how, how was how was even even in the Jim, Jim Crow South, who were who was in charge of terrorizing and writing those laws? Individuals. Now, did they use the system of government to do that? Of course they did. But there were still individuals enforcing those laws and writing those laws and making sure those laws were put into effect. So racism is always a matter of individuals. Sin is always a matter of individuals because, I mean, this it's a simple, logical, logical syllogism. Individuals sin. Racism is a sin. Therefore, racism is an individual sin. Now, just because a bunch of individuals get together and use government to 
to sin, that still doesn't negate the fact that they are still individually sinning. And the last one here says, and one can fight racism without paying attention to sexism, homophobia, economic exploitation, and other forms of oppression or injustice. So this, they're critiquing the claim that you can fight racism without including all these other things. Now here again, this is where, because it's a worldly doctrine, everything gets imported into, so what, what, what is right is not separated from what is wrong. They, the world will always mix good and evil together and, call, and try to call it all good. For example, is sexism wrong? Of course, you shouldn't treat women or men differently based on their biological sex. But again, even for the world, they would say there's not just one sex. There's not just or there's not just two sexes. There's multiple genders. There's multiple you know, sexual identities. So even this doesn't really even make any sense because there's no there's no boundary. You don't even know what, what they really mean by this in the world. And then they put in homophobia, which homophobic the literal meaning of homophobia is you're scared of uh, of homosexuals. That's what a phobia is. It's a fear of them. But if I say God's word declares that homosexuality is a sin, I'll be labeled homophobic. Even though I'm not scared of them, I'm just telling you what God's word has revealed. It's a sin. It's wrong. It deserves the death penalty, just like every other sin deserves the death, deserves the death penalty because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So they they import all these other things within this fight for for against racism, but they are including other things that are that ought not to be included because those are actual sins. So you can't you can't solve sin with more sin. That's that's the problem we're having here. So those are the seven tenets of CRT, according to Harper, Patton and Wooden in Access and Equity for African-American students in higher education or critical race historical analysis of policy efforts. So continuing with the quotations from the critical race theorist that Neil Shenvey has put on his website. In Words That Wound, a book by Matsuda, Lawrence, Delgado, and Crenshaw, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, these are scholars that have invented, or according to Neil Shenvey, have all helped to found critical race theory as a discipline. So again, they start to give their six uh, six different points of critical race theory within the book Words That Wound on page six. These are the defining elements according to the critical race theorists themselves. Critical race theory recognizes that racism is endemic to American life. We ask how these traditional interests like federalism, privacy, traditional values, or established property interests serve as vessels of racial subordination. So everything that listed that I listed there, they're questioning how racism is used or is infused into those into those uh, ideas or qualities or or values and how racism is used within those things to continue racial subordination. So number two, another defining element, critical race theory expresses skepticism toward dominant legal claims of neutrality, objectivity, colorblindness, and meritocracy. So there we go again. So this is, again, one of the defining elements of critical race theory is skepticism toward dominant legal chains of neutrality, objectivity, colorblindness, and meritocracy. Now, in legal terms, you have to be neutral if you want a fair trial. A fair trial is based on the notion of neutrality, where you're not going to be, uh, you're not going to be biased against by the prosecutor 
or by the jury or by the judge. I mean, I guess you will be a prosecutor. You will be biased against by the prosecutor. But even within that bias, they they have to bring neutral facts. They have to bring objectivity to uh, to the to the case. They can't just make up things and expect the jury and the judge to accept them. They have to bring evidentiary uh, items to the case to convict you. And then on the other side, the defense has to do the same thing. He can't just say, judge, he didn't do it or she didn't do it. And then let's all go home. They have to bring evidence and, 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 and use that to defend you if you're on trial. And these things are dealt with in or should be in the highest terms. Of if you want a really professional, legal and successful courtroom, you have to have neutrality. You have to have objectivity where you can't just bring in subjective notions and expect that to fly. Within the courtroom, you have to bring facts and data and evidence. And it, and again, with colorblindness, like I said earlier, colorblindness is a term that does not literally mean that you can't see color. But the fact is that because the system of America, especially the American system, was for the majority of its history is based on subjugating people that were of a different skin color. Colorblindness is the notion that we're not going to we're not going to make a judgment based on somebody's skin color. We're going to try to be colorblind as far as I'm not going to be looking at you and then make a conclusion based on what you look like. I want to be blind to that color. That's what that means. It doesn't mean I don't see your skin color, your skin tone or anything like that. And then they're questioning also meritocracy in this in the defining element. So if you work hard, if you do what is right, if you show yourself to be a talent and diligent in what you do, you ought not to be rewarded for that or or they're at least questioning whether that should even be that should even be something that is held up as a as a good thing. So the third defining element, they say critical race theory challenges a historicism and insists on a contextual historical analysis of the law. As critical race theorists, we adopt a stance that presumes that racism has contributed to all contemporary manifestations of group advantage and disadvantage along racial lines. So. I think if you are somebody who cares about truth and we ought to as Christians, we ought to care about what is true because our savior himself, he said he is the truth. And if we don't care about the truth, then it's, it's not a small leap to say, then you really don't care about Christ. So as far as a historicism in context in the regarding history, when analyzing the law, I think those are all good things. You want to bring out, more evidence, things that are true and bring more context into situations to understand what went on in history and and how things how these things played out, because that's a good thing. We want evidence. We want truth. We want data. We want facts. Anybody who wants truth shouldn't have no problem with that. As far as the stance that they say that we presume racism has contributed to all contemporary manifestations of group advantage and disadvantage along racial lines, that's where the trouble comes in because you start to wonder, okay, well, is there a legacy of slavery? Is there a legacy of Jim Crow? While that may very well be true, is that is that saying that all contemporary manifestations uh, of group advantage and disadvantage are a result of those things? As far because don't people still make their own decisions? Don't people choose to work or not work? Don't people choose to save or not save or vacation or not vacation? Or, or you know, we all are individuals today with families, with with um, with different dreams, different desires. Some people want to work 80 hours a week. Some people only want to work 40 hours a week. Some people want to become a doctor. Some people want to become uh, an artist. So, I mean, all it all depends on what you do. But if you're locked in this group advantage, disadvantage. Now, again, 
that doesn't mean history is completely obliterated and has nothing to do with today. I think we're all formed in some respect by the history of where we come from. And for example, in my case, I probably wouldn't be born in America if there wasn't a civil war. My parents would have stayed in Liberia. I would have grown up there. I would have never, as far as I know, I wouldn't have come over here and been raised and schooled and educated within America. But my history, my family history had a lot to do with where I was born and where I was raised. So again, that's not to say that history doesn't mean anything or shouldn't or doesn't play a role within our broader society. It's just how much of a role does it play? And to already start with the conclusion that racism contributes to all manifestations of group disadvantage or advantage is just not right. Or at least it's not right in the sense that you have to show the evidence of that. Number four, the critical race theory insists on recognition of the experiential knowledge of people of color. This knowledge is gained from critical reflection on the lived experience of racism. And I think I said this earlier, people of color. I mean, isn't white a color? Uh, Last I checked, white is a color, black's a color, brown's a color. And so, but I understand what they mean by people of color. So I, I don't think there's there's no room for experiential knowledge. We all have different types of knowledge that we, that we grow up with and that we, uh, that we, that we hear from family, from friends, things that go on, um, lived experience, nothing wrong with that. If it's true, then yeah, there's, there's no problem with that. As far as lived experience of racism, the problem is how do you verify the racism? Cause sometimes again, two acts can take place. One person interprets it as racism. The other person doesn't. And when it comes to racism, it's not always overt. Now, if it's covert, uh, yeah, again, that goes back to how do you know? How do you know they were being racist? Maybe that person was having a bad day. Maybe they didn't see you in traffic. Maybe they didn't see you while they were walking down the street. Maybe they were caught up in their own thoughts. Maybe they had a lot of issues going on. Maybe their their dad or their brother or they just lost their job. So they weren't very cordial to you when they when they were dealing with you. I mean, there's all these other factors that are at play. And I think this goes back to the concept of what love is. It's it's believing the best about others. You know, the Bible says in First Corinthians 13, love, uh, love is about believing all things, hoping all things, trusting all things, not thinking evil of your neighbor. All these things can should play a role in how we think about what love is and what love isn't. And so when it comes to this lived experience, that's not to deny the lived experience of people who went through traumatic problems because of racism. Because again, the Civil Rights Act in 1965, Voting Rights Act 1964, the Fair Housing Act in 1968, these things took place within the lifetime of millions of people that are still alive today. So to pretend as if when those laws are passed, immediately racism and discrimination stopped. I mean, that would just be a fool, a foolish conclusion to draw. So people have ex- real experiences of racism and they should be heard. I mean, they should be, They we want to know what went on. Uh, number five, critical race theory is interdisciplinary and eclectic. It borrows from several traditions, including liberalism, law and society, feminism, Marxism, post-structuralism, critical legal theory, pragmatism and nationalism so it's not just a one it's not just a singular theory it it borrows from all kinds of different other theories and isms you know liberalism marx marxism feminism things that i would say are are not are not 
generally biblical things for which to base uh, a belief on or a system of thought on. Neither would be pragmatism or, or even nationalism. To So I think these things are we should be on the high alert when it comes to what critical race theory in again this is people these are the people who helped found what critical race theory is today as a discipline so these are in their this is in their own words and then the last defining element of critical race theory they say in their book words that wound critical race theory works toward the end of eliminating racial oppression as part of the broader goal of ending all forms of oppression Racial oppression is, is experienced by many in tandem with oppressions on grounds of gender, class, or sexual orientation. Now, here is where the problem lies. At least one of the major red flags, I would say, for me is when it comes to critical race theory is that ending racial oppression is good. Now, you have to define what is the oppression that's taking place right now. Now, some people say the police are systemically racism or there's racism in, in schooling or there's racism on the job. And all these things are, I would say, have scanty evidence. As far as I'm concerned, I'm willing to hear more uh, detail. I'm still learning about these things, reading about these things. But in regards to ending all forms of oppression, that's a worthy goal. But when you, again, what what exactly is oppression? Because as Christians, if we say there are only two genders, God made them male and female, Genesis 1. If we say that uh, your sexual orientation. If you're a male, you should desire only a female. And, and even within that, you should only desire one female to be with sexually. And that would be your wife and vice versa. If you're a woman, the the law of God says you should only give yourself to your husband, fornication and homosexuality and lesbianism. All the, those are all sins. Those are all, uh, 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 deemed, uh, sinful in God's eyes and are worthy of death. And so is that a form of oppression? Because if it is, and I think from the standpoint of what we hear in society today, if you don't, if you're not on board with uh, transgenderism and, and homosexuality and, and, and sexual freedom and promiscuity, then you are just a bigot, you're a sexist, you're a homophobe, all these things that, uh, that really don't make sense within their, their actual meanings, but this is how the world uses it. So is is this, the kind of oppression that critical race theory aims to end. This is where we need more detail, more understanding of what they actually mean by what they say. So these are just a few of the things that were on that critical race theorists, theorists themselves are saying. And it was provided by Neil Shenvey from his website. That's Shenvey Apologetics, S-H-E-N-V-I. So when we hear critical race theory, let's go to the sources. Let's find out what they say and match it up with what the Bible says. And that's what I'm trying to do here. We'll talk more about it in another podcast. Thanks for listening today. And if you have any questions or thoughts or, uh, you know, we can leave a review or you can leave a, a question on the YouTube page or on my Facebook page or even on Twitter at do lost podcast. And, uh, cover it on the show or respond to you on, on one of those platforms so thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of do loss